Good afternoon and welcome to The Soul Shop. I'm your host, Phyllis King. Today I'm going to be speaking with Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. is here to talk about several of the books he's participated in and uh, The Mastery of Love was his dad's book, but um, he has other books as well, Living a Life of Awareness. And then he co-wrote a book also, The Seven Secrets to Healthy, Happy Relationships with a dear friend, Heather Ash Amara. So let's bring him into the conversation. Miguel, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much, Phyllis, for having me. It's an honor. If you'd be so kind, would you just give me the synopsis of your evolution? My my grandmother, Madre Sarita, she is the beacon of the family. Um, my, sometimes people say that I'm walking in my father's footsteps, that me and my brother are just following in what he started. And I'm like, no, that's not true. My father, myself, and my brother, Jose, all three of us are continuing my grandmother's uh, dream, her, 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 her passion. You know, she, uh, we come from a long uh, line of uh, teachers. Her grandfather, my great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, uh, Don Ezequiel Macias, he lived, he lived in the 1800s. Uh, he's the one that gave us the name Dr. Toltec. And I say that's him because I don't know his father's or mother's name. So I have to go far, as far as living memory goes. And he taught us in a, his family in a unique way, which is the sh- traditional shamanic way. Now, he, if you ever find a picture of Don Ezequiel, he's the typical Mexican with the big sombrero with the old big uh, mustache. If you ever see a movie called The Milagro Benfield War, you know, and you see the, the shaman in that movie, that would be my grandfather, the, the trickster. And he only taught to select few. Oh. His son, Don Leonardo Macias, was born in, in 1883 or 82. Uh, he was a soldier and he was a musician. So he was a slightly different from Leonardo. He was mm-hmm. more disciplined. If Don Ezequiel was the trickster, Don Leonardo was the military man who was musician. So he taught the tradition through music, through attention and discipline. Okay. So you have the trickster and the musician, military. Uh, but they also, both of them taught just to select few, not too many people, just the people who they chose to. There was also a little bit of a taboo, the, the, what, the remnants of the Holy Inquisition in Mexico and how that affected. So there was that part of like, don't talk too much outside the right. family. But my grandma Sarita had an aha moment where uh, when she was in her 40s or 30s, she had a moment of, of clarity and you know, when she, she herself got sick and the family came in to help her. And that's when she began to believe in faith healing. And mm-hmm. she let go of what she was doing before and completely immersed herself in the family tradition. And she practiced it through faith healing and and. Uh, and healing and doing sermons. So sometime in the 1960s and 70s, my, my fa- whole family finds themselves in Tijuana and in San Diego, California, where my grandmother decides to open up a small little temple in Barrio Logan in San Diego, California, hmm. where she gave sermons to the community. So all of a sudden she opens the gates. She doesn't want to just teach to a select few. She teaches to a whole community. You know, she, she has... Uh, the people who she gives a sermon in, on Thursday nights and Sunday mornings, kind of like a mass. Mm-hmm. And during the week, she would do consultations and faith healing sessions. And to such degree that in 2007, 
the San Diego Women's Hall of Fame inducted her into the San Diego Women's Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. And they inducted her because they wanted to honor her for keeping a traditional life. So it was her that when my father had his haha moment sometime in the late 1970s and began his apprenticeship with her and let go of, the, of being a medical doctor, he completely started doing dreamings uh, with her and learning her, her tradition that way that um, somewhere in between, like he combined what he knew of being a medical doctor with the shamanic tradition and put it into a language that everyone can understand because he saw that there was a lot of fanaticism surrounded the family and, and what was Toltec. Right. So he wanted to put it in a words that was common, common sense. For example, the word Toltec is a Nahuatl word that in English means artist. When I say I'm a Toltec, I'm actually saying I'm an artist. If I translate the phrase, the Toltec art of transformation into 100% English, it means the artist path of transformation. Yes. So from that point of view, the canvas for my work of art is my life. And the mm -hmm. instrument I'm going to use to create that work of art is my yes and my no, my body, my mind. Mm -hmm. That's how I can create the most perfect nightmare or the most yes. harmonious dream. And with every choice I make, I'm creating somewhere between the two. And this work of art is continuously changing with every choice I make. And it's yes. beautiful. So from that point of view, when I come in and I, be and I become an apprentice to my grandmother Sarita when I was 14 years old, and my father is changing and putting everything in his own unique way. So I, I grew up with dualities, you know, the medical doctors and the faith healers. I'm one of the rare cases where I lived in San Diego and I crossed the border every day into Tijuana, Mexico to go to school in Tijuana. Otherwise, my accent be more like this. <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's the thing. So I went to school in Tijuana. I got educated in Tijuana, but I lived in San Diego. And I grew up with that duality as well. So I, part of my upbringing was the dualities of things, being able to see things from different points of view. So, but at 14, what did 14. you at 14? I mean, what did a 14 year old boy, young man, I mean, were you eager for this? Uh, well, I paid attention, I paid attention because I love my family. You know, you can say that when I was, when I was, when I was already born, when I was born in 1975, my grandmother already was Madre Sarita. As you can say, she was already that beacon, that pillar of the, of the community. Okay. So, I grew up kind of like being like the grandson of a, of, a, of a preacher or a priest or a minister. You know, if, if, if you ever grew up, grew up around a church, you basically go to church every Sunday. You know, you, you, I'm, right. I'm there watching my grandma so right. and my grandfather. So I grew up with that. I grew up with that being such a normal thing. So at the age of 14, that's when the initi my initiation started. And I started by translating for my grandmother who didn't speak any English. It was all Spanish. So I translated her sermons, her lectures, her oh consultations, her healing sessions, basically anything that was part of her practice, mm -hmm. I translated. And in a certain way, that's how she began to teach me by meditating. You know, for example, she would first take it easy on me. You know, I, I would say some, a, a phrase, translate a phrase, and then she would say her thing, pause, I would translate, she would say, and that's how it went. Until she all of a sudden got steam and all of a sudden she just got into a role and started just 
blowing through that pause and just talk, talk, talk. And there I am doing my best to, <laughs> up to translate everything she's saying. So I had a cue of all these things I had to translate. Yeah. And when I finished that cue, she was miles away. Like she was, she's already gone. So I can't really ask her, grandma, can you repeat everything you just said <laughs> in the middle of her lecture? Right. I just had to cut my losses and <laughs> jump in. So Funny. there were gaps of things I didn't translate. Mm -hmm. And as a year or two passed, like it got better and better and better, but I wasn't really able to bridge the gap until my grandmother one day asked me, Miguel, have you figured out where, why you're having such a tr problem translating for me? And I said, well, grandma, you're not giving me any time. You just keep going and I need to translate it to get it right. It has to be mm -hmm. perfect. Mm -hmm. And I, when, I, when I said that, she went and looked at me and asked me what was throughout my apprenticeship with her, my 10, 14 years with her. Do you control knowledge or does knowledge control you? Oh. When I was 14 years old, I had no idea what that meant. Yeah. But basically she said, what's happening is this. Yes, you start paying attention to me at the beginning, but somewhere along the line, your attention shifts from me to what's happening inside your mind, that voice in your mind that's talking. When you do that, you're no longer listening. So when that happens, that's when you begin to lose and you, you try your best to catch up, but eventually you shift your attention from me to you. Mm -hmm. So here's what I want you to do, Miguel. Next time, Here's the, trust yourself. You already know English and you know Spanish. You don't need to translate it in your head. You know the language. When you hear it, open your mouth and it'll be in English. You'll hear it in Spanish. You'll say it in English. But what I want you to do, the key thing is that the voice inside your head is my voice, not your voice, my voice. Listen to what I'm saying and translate. Trust yourself to do that. Trust yourself that it doesn't have to be perfect. Trust your ability to listen. And that's, that was her, basically the, the first real assignment she gave. Mm. Uh, after that point, I was translating and all that. And, but that was her first true assignment to me. And at first, it was tough because I had to learn not to get distracted. So I closed my eyes. Oh, That's the, that's the easy part because... If I have my eyes open, I get easily distracted by what's happening in the room, someone saying this. It's so easy to get distracted. So I was able to turn off my vision and I can hear her. It was a little easier, but I still get distracted. I would hear a noise. I would hear a sound and I open my eyes to look. <laughs> so now I had to learn not to give in to the temptation to open my eyes to see what's making the sound. It's my grandma's voice. So I had to learn how to focus. And when I was able to do that, the next challenge was not to give in to my body. You know, the mm. itchy of the nose, this, this <laughs> itch over here, or, or the sound, like, don't give in to the temptation. Because mm. if, I, if I see something, hear something, or even give in to it, I'd lose her. She just kept going. Mm. So in order to stay with her, I had to really focus. And then came the real tough part. Hmm. not to give in to the temptation to my thoughts. Did I leave the stove on? Did I leave? Did I lock the car? Did this, what happened? And as soon as I start drifting, my attention went away and I lose her. Mm -hmm. So I had to really learn how to focus my attention 
on what she's doing. Mm -hmm. Eventually, I was able to translate for her in real time. She would say one or two letters of a word, and I'd translate it. So mm -hmm. you had two people almost simultaneously talking, one in Spanish, one in English. And so basically, as time progressed, I realized that's my grand, my uh, Don Leonardo's forefather's teaching. That was that's an uh, that's an exercise of a musician how yes. to teach someone because my yeah. grandfather would do is he would have an orchestra because that's how, what he had, and he would have his apprentice focus on one instrument throughout the song. Oh, I see. If you hook your attention by any other instrument, your attention is not that strong. You have to start all over again until you're able to hear only, for example, the bass or the guitar. Don't use the voice because that's too easy. Just focus your attention on one of the instruments throughout the song and don't give your attention to any of the other instruments. In short, this is how my, my grandmother taught me how to meditate, how to stay centered and focused. You know, when you learn to meditate, you first start by focusing on your breath. Right. Then learn not to give into the temptation that makes you break that connection. So well, this was over a 10-year period? I mean, at what point did you get to the mastery of what you're describing? Somewhere around years five or six, I was able to catch so up. So you were like her. 19 or 20, and you've been... Yeah, I was in college when, that, when, when I was able to really get into that point. But that's how my grandmother taught me how to, how to meditate. Mm -hmm. Because the next step after that was in her teaching of meditation, when she was set, when the second assignment was, all right, now do the same thing, Miguel. And I want you to stay still, like find that, you know, sit in your chair, uh, knees in a 90 degree angle, hands on your knees, close your eyes and sit there. Mm -hmm. If you move, you have to start all over again. And the reason why she would say this is that she would have us do this, and she took it easy on me because I was young. She only had me do it for an hour. She had my father do it for three hours. Oh, so, my gosh. So for three hours, we had to hold this position. And it was all about learning discipline, how to oh. stay centered in that thing. So if you move, if you scratch your nose because it's so itchy you have to start all over again and all over again and all over again until you hit yeah in my case the hour mark my dad the three hour mark because that was his session with dreaming amazing so that's how she taught us that ability to focus our attention you know that the reason why an om is so powerful is when you meditate with the Oh, all your attention goes straight to the to the om to that vibration. Mm -hmm. Like when you do an om, when you do a meditation like that, nothing else really comes into your mind. It just goes. It's a very powerful instrument. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the things that I've learned. That so in my apprenticeship with my grandmother in that beginning stage. That was the crucial part because, mm -hmm. you know, in order to meditate and things like that, if you don't have that discipline, you're going to get easily uh, be swept away with your thoughts and the trail of thoughts or those tangents and things like that. To be completely present is, is about shifting your attention to that which 
takes away your attention from the past or the future because the past mm -hmm. only exists in your mind because you can't go back there and change a yes to a no or no to yes because it no longer exists there's no life in the past just like the future doesn't exist it only exists in the mind with all the what ifs and answering all the what ifs mm -hmm. the only place that doesn't need you for it to exist is this present moment mm -hmm. so having your attention because she would say this imagine you do you're focusing on the narration in your mind about what's happening imagine you kiss someone and you're describing what you're experiencing instead of being present in that beautiful communion you're completely in your mind saying what does this mean what does that say are we in a committed relationship are we boyfriend girlfriend <laughs> and all of a sudden you start thinking that and you're no longer present your the mind has taken you in the direction that you missed it and you start thinking about the past or you compare the past with the present or the future and all of a sudden mm. your attention is not even in this beautiful moment you're missing out yeah. so she says imagine doing that with life you're going to miss out on life if you focus all your attention all the all the what ifs or what should have been and all that all that happens is that you miss this present moment stay present and you will enjoy every moment of your life because you're there for it so i know you have children yes how old are your two. kids huh how old are your kids my son is 16 years old he has autism and my daughter is 14 years old she's typical um, um but she's you know both both of them are teenagers and my daughter just got interested in the family tradition and we're okay. doing it you know in our own unique way my, my wife she grew up mormon and oh. i grew up catholic toltec so we basically teach them the the we, we kind of nitpick what we're presenting but okay. they, they themselves will bring their own tradition in their own unique way well, it's just to me this idea of the the level of discipline that you created what that happened for you at that age what what boy what a life that set you up for that's remarkable well thanks yeah it's it's it's, it's what it is you know and right now i'm a parent it's tough you know the, the one thing we parents don't tell our kids especially other people who don't have kids is that we have no idea what we're doing we're doing the best with what we've got because yeah because as soon as you get used to being the parent of a one-year-old they turn two making everything you knew about parenting irrelevant and it goes out the window so every birthday is i throw out everything i knew because the person i'm raising is changing right in front of me yeah. what motivates them no longer motivates them yeah so talk about being present yeah because if i completely focus on who they're supposed to be what they should be doing i'm going to miss out on them as well especially with my son if I'm totally focusing on what should be, I'm totally missing out on what is. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to be able to help him if I don't even pay attention. Yes. Well, thank you for all of that. It's 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 all enlightening. But can we chat about your book, this book? Yeah, yeah. I try to keep it as, as short as possible. No, well, you have, there's so much depth and dimension to your story and your information. And we could go on and on. I just, I want the listeners and the people who love you after the fact to be able to, um, um you have an explanation of key terms at the beginning as i got through the book i thought i needed more of these because <laughs> it's like another language for me but yes. there it's so delicious um the word i think uh domestication mm -hmm. can we talk about that for a minute and what that sure. means 
Sure. What would you like to know? Well, I mean, essentially, my interpretation is that we're we're programmed by culture and society, and we don't realize it. And mm-hmm. you, you're calling it domestic. We're domesticated, and mm-hmm. we don't even realize it. And kind of automatic pilot about how we're going about living and yes. missing out. And is that correct? Yes, you're correct. And then uh, at least that's how I, inter- I interpret it as well. Yes. Yeah, and so and then and then of course in the book you have all these incredible exercises and exercise is a, a rough word for people to hear they're they're little journeys you take yourself on and they're so beautiful um like just this one identity list and it talks about you know as with the pre what the, go- the goal here is to learn more about yourself and how you've created an identity writing with a sense of detachment list any positive aspects of yourself or accomplishments that you use to establish your self-worth then it gives some examples i'm generous i'm spiritual and when you're done with your list spend some time considering how you would feel if something were to happen to take these aspects away from you i mean i didn't do the exercise yet but i started to think about it and i got a little nervous (laughs) yeah well okay so thanks thanks for that and now i know how to enter um, okay, so domestication. Domestication is a system of reward and punishment by which we model the behavior of an individual, where if you live up to an expectation, you're worthy of a reward. And if you fall short of that expectation, you're worthy of the punishment. And since we are emotional beings who feel the full spectrum of our emotions, that reward, when we live up to the expectation, feels like acceptance, which feels like love. And the punishment feels like rejection which feels like the lack thereof of love. It's the way we've learned conditional love. I love you if. An identity, it's a beautiful thing. An identity is a symbol that allows you to pay homage or honor to your preferences in life. Not just as well as your, where you come from, your ancestors. You know, For example, in my case, the word Toltec also means ancestry for me. Uh, like where I come from, the, the, the neighborhood, the experience, if I call myself a Tijuana or San Diego or just border town, like I think if I say Tijuana, it explains one environment. If I say San Diego, it explains another yeah. one. If I yeah. say border town, it explains both. Yeah. I can grab all these things and try, if I can try to live up to it, then I'll be worthy of, the, of, of, the, of that reward. If I live up to be what is a right Tijuanero or a right San Diego or what, a right uh, border, or let me use this example, and I'm going to use domestication in this example. Mm-hmm. Hello, my name is Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. I don't take things personal. I don't make assumptions. I always do my best. <gasps> oh no, what's the fourth agreement? Oh no, how can I call myself Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. with all of the four agreements? And there is that downward spiral, that diatribe of judgment punishing me for not living up to the image of perfection that is Don Miguel Ruiz Jr., who doesn't take things personal, doesn't make assumptions, always does his best, and he's impeccable with his word. Thank you very much. I live up to the four agreements that I'm worthy of love, and I'm worthy of the name Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. But if I fall short again, like forgetting the fifth agreement, be skeptical, but learn to listen. Oh no, I fell short again. And how can I call myself? And now there I am punishing myself once again. It's kind of like saying the perfect version of me is to live up to this ideal, something that is perfect, which is something that is completely free of any flaw. And then I'll be worthy of that image, of that love. Say I'm 27 years old, weigh 170 pounds, and have 
wonderful hair. But that's not the truth. I look at myself in the mirror and I'm 46 years old. I weigh 194 pounds. And this is the truth of my hair. <laughs> because I don't live up to that ideal image of perfection. Mm. I'm going to castigate myself. I'm going to judge myself. You fat. You bald fat. You old bald fat. Wow. And if you ever look at yourself in the mirror and feel the sting of your judgment, mm -hmm. that's what domestication is. Mm. You're looking yourself in the mirror. You have an ideal version of who you're supposed to be or what, what is to be handsome, what is to be beautiful, what is to be a man, what is to be a woman, what is to be all these things, fill in the blank of your identity. Mm -hmm. And if I live up to it, then I'm worthy of love. And mm -hmm. if I don't, I'm going to be worthy of my own punishment. Mm -hmm. And if you ever judge yourself for taking things personal, being not being impeccable with the word or any of the four agreements, which is my father's book, mm -hmm. then we've used the four agreements as an instrument of domestication. So we corrupt the four agreements and turn them into the four conditions of our personal freedom. Mm -hmm. That's the way we corrupt Don Miguel Ruiz in the Totec tradition, Deepak Chopra, Marianne Williamson, Yoga, Jesus, Buddha, Siddhartha, Muhammad, psychology, psychology, Alcoholics Anonymous. Humanity has created all these beautiful traditions that allows us to let go of conditional love and embrace unconditional love, but we're so used to the domestication that we will corrupt all of them. And just like the four agreements, turn them into the four conditions. So from that point of view, domestication is a system of reward and punishment by which we domesticate or subjugate ourselves to an image or a projection that someone has of us. Mm -hmm. And we internalize it and we use it as the model by which we domesticate ourselves. Mm -hmm. Ego is easier to understand as a function rather than a concept. The function of ego is to protect the illusion. The illusion mm -hmm. is that image of self that is perfect or whatever it is that we use as the model by which we domesticate ourselves. Mm -hmm. And if I live to it, I'm worthy of love. Mm -hmm. And if we fall short of it, for example, if I take things personal and I'm still want to, I want to deny it and I'm going to, no, I have to protect the image of Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. I was just <laughs> trying testing you. That's ah, not real. <laughs> I know for a fact that, you know, and th that's how we use denial or rejection or yeah. ego when in my case would be Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. Mm -hmm. So an identity, going back to the question of putting it, it's a beautiful thing when we use it as an instrument that honors that preference, that mm -hmm. honors the ancestors or where we come from. Mm -hmm. But just like the four agreements, we can turn it and use it as a model of our domestication. Or there are some people who don't like the word domestication. They say only animals are domesticated. Oh. We humans don't get domesticated. Okay, fine. Conditioning. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can get conditioned. But it's the same method. It's the same system, reward and punishment. Mm -hmm. Even then, you know, that's the funny part. So the main problem that the four agreements and every single one of our books is domestication and different forms and different shapes in regards to relationship with ourselves, with other people. So it gets to the point where we, you know, to be the master of self, is the moment where I stop pretending to be something I am not for the sake of someone else's point of view. Mm -hmm. In a mastery of self, the, it's about getting to know myself, where I no longer 
domesticate myself in order to create something. The mastery of love, it's about accepting myself. This is who I am. To me, the, the, the agreements of the four agreements that describes the mastery of love is always do your best. Mm -hmm. To always do your best is accept this is who I am today. I'm the sum of every decision that I've ever made and every choice, every consequence has brought me here to this mm -hmm. exact moment in time. And in the exact same moment in time, I'm the youngest I will ever be. This is who I am. Yeah. The mastery of love is the moment where I love myself unconditionally, which is conditional love only sees what it wants to see. Mm. And it only wants to see that model by which we domesticate ourselves. I love you if. Unconditional love, in contrast, is the willingness to see the whole of who I am. The whole yin and yang. For example, the analogy I love to use for that is that of uh, an old story, the, the, the story of the two wolves. Okay. Uh, it's in the movie Tomorrowland by Disney. Oh. Uh, inside of us, there live two wolves. One, a wolf of love and compassion. The other one, a wolf of hate and, and jealousy. Both wolves live inside of us. So grandfather's teaching this lesson to the grandson. It's a Cherokee version. The grandson hears this and says to the grandfather, if I make them fight, which one will win? And the grandfather says with so much sage and wisdom, the one you feed. Hmm. Now, the first time I heard this one, I thought, well, naturally we feed the wolf of love and compassion. That's not what we're supposed to be, right? Mm -hmm. But as I become a, became aware of what unconditional love is, which is to love the whole of the yin yang, mm -hmm. so even to embrace and acknowledge the shadow self. Yeah. I am the wolf of hate and jealousy just as much I am, as I'm the wolf of love and compassion. I'm going to feed both. Mm -hmm. The difference is I'm not going to make them fight. The war ends with me. Mm -hmm. In my life, that would be this, embracing this side of me. Hello, my name is Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. And I do take things personal. I do make assumptions. Sometimes I'm not impeccable with the word. Sometimes I'm not skeptical at all. I buy a hook, line, and sinker. And sometimes I don't do my best. Just ask my wife. She is my witness. <laughs> it is the moment where I embrace that shadow side of myself, mm -hmm. that side of me that I've been rejecting mm. and punishing and whatever for being and pretending to be this image of perfection. But if I accept the whole of who I am and that I'm free to say yes to taking it personal, just as much as I'm free to say yes to not taking it personal, that's what personal freedom is. Mm -hmm. I'm free to say yes to either one. And because I'm aware of it, I choose not to take it personal because I don't want to experience the hangover that comes with taking it personal. So in the mastery of love, you can say, I am willing to see myself as I am. In the mastery of self, this is the choice I, am, I have and I can take and the mastery of life is knowing that I'm the one making the choice. Yes. So from that point of view, domestication takes away my ability to say yes and no. It's mm -hmm. knowledge controlling my yes and my no, controlling me. Mm -hmm. And knowledge in this case is the corrupted version of how I used knowledge to subjugate myself mm -hmm. with conditional love. Mm -hmm. If I'm using knowledge... I'm aware that knowledge is an instrument that informs my choice, but I'm the one making the choice. Mm -hmm. 
there's my grandmother's apprenticeship with me all these years. Mm. So it's all about can, what do I want to create? Mm-hmm. It's about mm-hmm. choice. Mm-hmm. So it, it's about being able to clean my awareness or my knowledge as an instrument. For example, to not be impeccable with the word is to use my word to reinforce my domestication, my conditioning, my conditional mm-hmm. love. Mm-hmm. To use my word impeccably is to use the word to heal from the wounds that conditional love left my heart mm-hmm. and to inform me of my choices and be willing to see life as is mm-hmm. without knowledge distorting it. And what I mean by that, corrupted knowledge, obviously. Mm-hmm. Because when knowledge reflects life as is, is what we know as the truth. Mm-hmm. Well, and this book... The Mastery of Life. It has a lot of great stories in it that illustrate the points, which, and that you're just a beautiful writer. Oh my gosh, your use of language is just exquisite. Um, And you talk about Toltec traditions, and um, I'm going to butcher it Teotihuacan. (laughs) You got it, you got it. Teotihuacan. Teotihuacan. And and this is where it's all, this is the origin down south. Um, and then and you talk about plazas and you talk about pyramids, but I don't know, I'm focused a lot on these exercises. This one really stuck out to me, Miguel, because how can you tell when you're over-invested in a positive trait or activity? One good indicator is when you begin to feel superior because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, you can say that's the example I gave about the four agreements and turning into the four conditions. Yes. Like we're doing it because we have to, not because we want to. Yes. Well, and there's there's bits where I, unfortunately, fortunate, okay, I'm judging. Fortunately or unfortunately, I'm seeing myself in here. Um, and then identifying your mitot or mitote. I don't know mitote. how you say it. Yeah, What's mitote. a mitote for people who don't know? It's an expression. So my father, in his book, The, the Four Agreements, he uses the word, uh, imagine this, this analogy. Imagine that you're in a supermarket or one of those farmer's markets. You close your eyes and all of a sudden you hear everyone talking around you. Well, that's inside your mind. You know, like imagine your mind thinking that way. So it's a thousand voices all talking at the same time. That's basically the translation, the definition I grew up with. A thousand voices all talking at the same time, and I'm the single point of perception. The analogy that I kind of like and I adapted in my life is this. Imagine that you are at a stadium, a football stadium, baseball stadium, whatever stadium you've been. Just use your memory of a time you've been at a stadium to watch a sporting event. So I'm going to use football, NFL, Imagine or college. Imagine that you are in the 50-yard line and you're in the center of the field where the logo is. And you're standing right there. Imagine that the stadium is filled to the brim. It could be the one in Ann Harbor, Michigan, which is 100,000, or the Rose Bowl, which is 100,000, or the Azteca, which is also 100,000. And to the brim, it's full of people. Just imagine the whole stadium, the sounds, if you can use your memory. And just like a game, you know, it's like half the stadium cheers when the home team is doing something. And this little small crowd over here, the visiting side, boos or, or jeers. And vice versa, it flips. If 
the if the if the visiting team is doing something good, the whole other stadium is going boo, and the other stadiums, the, the smallest section, are cheering. Just imagine that back and forth. Mm-hmm. All right, if you have that image, let's continue the the analogy. Let's pretend that every single person in the stadium represents a belief in your mind, an idea, a concept, something you've said yes to in your mind. From anxiety, from beautiful thoughts, to nostalgia, to longing, to love, to joy, everything, every single belief that triggers a reaction or emotion on us. Let's use that. Let's say all of them have the same pitch, same value, and they're all screaming their be- the best, but they're like that, and you're in the center. Welcome to my a, mind. A thousand, a thousand, a hundred thousand voices all talking at the same time. Now, as the individual, and going back to my grandmother's uh, uh, exercises for me, where's your attention? And here's the thing, if you're in a hundred thousand in a stadium of 100,000 where everyone is shouting at the same time, the one that you hear are the ones you're attracted to, which means the one you're giving your attention to. That is the loudest one. So let's imagine a mitote is basically all your emotions, all your thoughts, that noise inside your mind. Some people like to say the word monkey mind. The monkey mind is just basically everywhere. It just doesn't know where it's just, you know, squirrel, you know, type of thing. <laughs> so where is your attention? If you're giving your attention to all your thoughts that give anxiety, your whole world is going to be painted in that way. Mm-hmm. If you put all your attention and love, that's, that's what you're going to have. Or joy or longing or nostalgia. All of a sudden, and it shifts, it shifts continuously. But your attention is like... Being in a hurricane, it can sweep you away. But just like a hurricane, if you're standing in the eye of the hurricane, there's peace. So you can say learning to meditate is being able to shift your attention from all this stadium, every single one of those thoughts, completely down to the individual that's in the 50-yard line, which is me, my focal point of attention. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden it goes silent. Mm. You could be in the middle of Mexico City or New York, mm. loud, everyone's making noises, but you'll be able to focus your attention from that image to the stadium down to, to that core. Mm-hmm. Then you're in silence. It's kind of like, a, have, you ever, have you ever seen a Tesla bulb? You know, that, that bulb with the light, with electricity in the center, if you put your finger on the surface of the, of the glass of the bulb, all of a sudden you have a oh, string yeah. of electricity shooting yes. at it. Let's imagine that the whole the whole sphere of glass of the bulb is covered with electricity. So imagine that shot of electricity is actually going to the fingers that conduct electricity the best. Let's imagine that your attention is the center coil, the center mm. of a Tesla bulb. Mm. To be able to be what one would consider Zen or silence, mm. it's all of a sudden that attention goes down to Mm. and that's what silence is Mm. and then once you're able to control that you pick and choose Mm. who you're giving attention to 
mm. of course, inside the mind. Because mm. once you're able to do that, you can also do it out there. You know, a teacher or, or anyone who's doing a presentation has learned to be able to focus their attention mm. on themselves and what they're saying rather than the, the audience. So it's like being in your center, yes. being present. Well, and an example of identifying your mitote, in what ways do I experience negative self-talk about my body? Give examples. And what day, um, in what ways do I experience negative self-talk about my career? If I, it, the way you lead us through this is really quite gentle and easy to see how we get trapped in our own, our own processes. Um, and just the way, I mean, I just loving your use of language, the, the, the chapter, the island of safety, and then you talk about the pillars of earth or different, this is the way you relate to the earth and our experience, exercise about the emotional body, the forgiveness letter, exercise for yes and no, the power of the jaguar, the animals, you bring all of this into it. Um, it's just a beautiful offering about how we can get to know ourselves better and have more peace inside our own skin, essentially. Mm -hmm. yes. And I was very relieved, Miguel, to read this last piece that we don't have to uh, talk about the profound teachings we have inside us. In fact, in many cases, it's better that we don't. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of this book, I suggested that you let my words go around your mind and into your heart, yet many people may not be able to do this. In those cases, my words may even become an obstacle because their minds will hear me and immediately put up a wall. Yes, a trigger. Yeah. So what do you believe? I mean, this is a book I want to keep reading and do the, I want to call them practices because exercise is going to make it sound hard, but it's really an, uh, an unlayering. And I think because of your incredible skill of language, you know, I'm able to get it in a different way than other people that I've read. So, well, thank you. I have to give some uh, thanks to the editors to help me, my my friend Christy and Randy, who who helped me with that language. So, thank you so much. Well, th thanks to them, but it's clear that you're quite the storyteller. Well, um, so, Sonia, you had a question for Miguel. I, I I missed that question, or Olivia, you could pull that up for her. What is the best way to control that monkey mind? Oh. Okay. So awareness. Um, I'll share with you it, uh, with the way my father taught me. If it resonates with you, great. But if it doesn't, it's you know, so great too. Thanks for the opportunity. But I'll, I'll, I'll do my very best to put it that way. And I use the word monkey mind because I know it's, it's a popular phrase in culture that people use. So I adapted to that. But the way my father put it to, to me is this way. Miguel, if you're the voice that's talking inside your mind, who's listening? I answered, I am. Oh, really? You're the one listening? Then who's talking inside your own mind? And I said, I am. That's what we know as the individual dream, the relationship between me and me, also known as my mind and my heart, our left hemisphere, right hemisphere, whichever metaphor we want to use to describe the relationship we have, that inner dialogue. If that inner dialogue is in harmony, then all my relationships are in harmony because mm. I'm the constant in every relationship. In every relationship that I am in, I only control to the tips of my fingers. 
in fact, my relationships I am in are there because both me and the person I'm in, I'm in relationship with are saying yes at the same time. If one of us changes that yes into a no, the relationship ceases to exist. So from that point of view, if there's harmony within me, then all my relationships have the potential or the opportunity to be an experience of unconditional love. Mm -hmm. But if that relationship within me is in disharmony, then all my relationships will be in disharmony because that's what I'm, I'm giving, because that's what, what I'm experiencing myself. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we talked about domestication. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's imagine me at the age of eight, because I'm learning how to assert myself. I'm learning how to say yes and no. And it feels good to say no. It feels powerful to say no. Forget about the terrible twos, it's the terrible eights, because now I know how to talk. And now that I have kids who are 16 and 14, it's the terrible teens, because it's they're learning how to assert themselves. They're learning how right. to say yes and no. So let's imagine my grandmother comes up with a bowl of soup and she gets, puts it right in front of me. Here you go, mijo. This soup will make you big and strong. And I go, no. <laughs> but honey, this soup will make you big and strong like Papa, like Superman. No. Now, mind you, at this moment, my grandmother is only thinking about nutrition. She knows that soup is good for me. So she goes into a memory bank trying to think of what worked in the past. I got it, she says. Here comes the plane, mijo. She grabs a spoonful of soup and she uses the go like a plane. And she puts it right to my mouth and I go, mm -mm, no, 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 no. And with every no I give, Little by little, it stops being about nutrition, and slowly, little by little, it starts being about control. Yes. She wants that yes, ever so innocently. And she reaches that threshold where she's tempted to cross that line of respect, and she tries to impose her will ever so innocently. And she goes, mijo, don't you know how many kids don't have anything to eat here in Mexico and around the world, and here you are wasting food? Honey, it's a sin to waste food. Oh, boy. Mind you, I grew up Catholic, which means I don't want to look like a selfish child, let alone I don't want to look like a sinner. So right. I go, yes, Grandma, I'll eat the soup. And I begin to eat. And I finish my bowl. And she comes up to me and she says, that's my good boy. I got the reward. Domestication is a system of reward and punishment by which we model the behavior of an individual. But it's also a way to control someone else's will. In this case, I didn't want the punishment, so I gave in. I changed my no into a yes. Yeah. I don't know if she'll actually see me as a sinner, but I wasn't going to find out. Right. But ever, ever so innocently, I subjugated my will as I changed that no into a yes. Now, here's the thing. You have to be careful what you tell an eight-year-old because fast forward 38 years later, yeah. I'm at a Mexican restaurant at least they call it Mexican food. <laughs> and halfway through my body, as I'm, the food that I'm eating, the plate that I'm eating, halfway through my body tells me the truth. I am full. I'm satisfied. There's no more space. I am full. I say no. But I hear conscious or subconscious, I hear this voice. It's a sin to waste food. Conscious or subconscious, I go, yes, grandma. And I continue to eat. And I'm so stuffed, you're going to have to roll me out of the restaurant. But here's the thing. In that moment of clarity where my body told me the truth, that I'm full, that I'm satisfied, 
I believe that was conscious or subconscious overruled me. Now, mind you, subconscious simply means that I've done it so many times, I no longer think about it. It's an automatic action, an automatic yes or no. In this case, an automatic subjugation of my will as I turned that no into a yes, and I went against myself. Because now I've been experienced the consequences of overeating, of, you know, there's, I'm, I'm already stuck. It's, 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 I can't even breathe because I'm so full, but I'm a good boy because I finished my plate. Here's the thing. I'm at that restaurant, but my grandmother is nowhere near. Mm -hmm. In fact, my grandma passed away 14 years ago. Mm -hmm. That's because we humans, as far as we know, are the only creatures that are able to self-domesticate. When we domesticate a dog or a cat, sorry, cat domesticates us, never mind. But Correct. <laughs> we have to be actively domesticating right. this dog. In my case, Tim and Brownie, who are over there. <laughs> but we have to be actively domesticating because they'll always try to see what they can get away with, yeah. whether find that corner and pee or, or eat that shoe. But since I live in the Sierra Nevadas here, if I leave that door open and they both escape, they'll go back to being what they always were, oh. dogs, in order for them to survive. Mm -hmm. they'll retain some of the trauma of their domestication here and there, but by and large, in order for them to survive, they go back to being what they always were. They'll pee mm -hmm. in that corner. They'll find that shoe. And if you see my dogs, if they're walking around, one of them is a, a German shepherd, Chihuahua, half German shepherd, half Chihuahua. And I think the German shepherd has the ability to survive, but the other one, Brownie, he is a Shih Tzu Bijan and I wish him all the luck. <laughs> But we humans, when our active domesticator, our, our conditioning person, stops actively domesticating us, we continue to domesticate ourselves. My father calls it the parasite in the four, in the, in the four agreements, mm -hmm. the judge and the victim, also mm -hmm. another form of imposing and subjugation. Mm -hmm. like the parasite mind is equivalent to the monkey mind. Mm -hmm. There's a phrase that I love. A quote by Eleanor Roosevelt that goes like this. No one can make me feel inferior without my consent. Mm -hmm. Actually, what she said is, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent, but I'm paraphrasing there. Right. No one can domesticate me without my consent. Yes. Here's the thing. How do we give consent? By believing it, oh. which is to say yes to it. In this case, in this example, I said yes to the belief when I was eight years old and I got so used to it that here's the thing. If I apply everything to unlearn this, to have a moment of clarity, you know, to be skeptical and learn to listen and put question it. And I've asked my father and ministers, rabbis, priests, many people who do, um, who are leaders of their community, spiritual ones, I ask them the same question. Is it a sin to waste food? Mm. They all said, no, it's a waste of food, but it's not a sin. Mm. It did not survive my scrutiny. It did not survive my reason. It didn't survive my skepticism. So I'm free to change that yes into a no. So I go, grandma, I forgive you. <laughs> I understand why you did it. I have kids of my own. 
teenagers, mm-hmm. in fact. And I totally get why you, why you did that. I want my kids to eat too. But can you forgive me? Because I've been using her words since I was eight years old. Because mm-hmm. in that scrutiny, I become aware of one big, big thing. My grandmother only said that to me once in my life when I was eight years old. I've been repeating it in her voice for 38 years, which means I am using her words to go against me. I'm not being impeccable with my intent, let alone my word. So I'm using that. So what's the best way to control the monkey mind? We've been controlling it, but we forgot. We just completely have forgotten that we gave it control away by still saying yes to all our domesticators in our in our life. Mm-hmm. We're still giving away to the people who domesticated us, who told us we're not pretty, we're not successful, we're not worthy of love. We uh, to the people in high school that judged us, to the ex boyfriend or ex girlfriend, or that that fear that person. We're still saying yes to that commercial. You know, like uh, there's somewhere some guy who is still saying, can't be a man if he doesn't smoke the same cigarettes as me. You know, Mick Jagger. You know, there's, you know, how many companies would go out of business if we actually stop believing them? Yeah. From that point of view, the monkey mind only represents not only the lack of, a, of discipline with our attention, because we're giving it everywhere, but we're still saying yes to that side of the stadium that says, no, I'm not worthy of love because of this, because of that. Kind of like the image mm-hmm. of I'm not worthy of love until I I stay 27 years old, keep looking like a 27 year old with full set of hair and do my very best to weigh 170, even though it's so difficult. <laughs> but I castigating myself, judging myself because I'm not living up to that image I see in the mirror. And that sting you feel when you look in the mirror that's what domestication is that's the Mm -hmm. monkey mind going like a scorpion that stings itself over and over again administering its own emotional poison every time we don't live up to expectation and sonia there is a the exercise there's many beautiful exercises in this book that are so easy and so gentle so simple but sometimes the simplest things we miss but Uh, I would encourage you to grab the book and go through some of these exercises because they are designed to help us to free ourselves from the conditioning we have. And it's, it's I'm going to do a lot of them. And I've done a lot of workbooks. Yeah. And then the other part is that you you have that moment of clarity. You become to terms. And the best way to let it go is to forgive ourselves. The best way to let go of conditional love is to forgive ourselves for ever saying yes to it in the first place. A teacher once taught me this in Sacramento. I wish I remember the name of the person, but I remember the person's voice very clearly. Forgiveness is the moment you no longer wish the past was any different. It is the moment you accept it and you let it go. That's what forgiveness is. So for me, processing and interpreting that means this. Forgiveness is the moment you no longer wish the past was any different. That's the moment you realize that life no longer exists in the past because I can't change a yes to a no or no to a yes in the past. The past only exists in my mind in the form of my memory in the same way as the future only exists in my mind as my form of my imagination with all of what is. It's the moment where we realize it happened and I can't change it. It happened. 
to accept it and let it go. That's what my brother has a metaphor, and I, and I briefly mentioned it. And I'm gonna say it again. Imagine a scorpion that stings itself over and over again with its own tail, administering the emotional poison that it meant for someone else to itself. Mm. Imagine we're that scorpion. Every time we think of the past or that moment, we hurt ourselves, hurt ourselves mm -hmm. over and over and over again and again and again and again. Forgiveness is that moment you accept the past and you let it go. What does letting go means? That I'm no longer going to sting myself with that poison. Mm -hmm. Then I'm not going to administer it. It's the moment I forgive myself, meaning I no longer use the past to hurt me. It's beautiful. Um, does anyone have any qu more questions? The last call for questions for Miguel. So this is your chance. Going, going once, going, going twice. And uh, again, while you're thinking about your question, this is the book. It's, you know, I've read hundreds and hundreds of books over the last 15 years interviewing people. And um, this one really touched me in a very unique way. And I'm going to be doing it myself. I thought I knew it all. No, I didn't. But um, I really appreciate that you gave me this new dimension to, to work with for myself. Um, let's see. Can you see Kay's question, Miguel? Oh, she says, wonderful interview. Thank you. You're welcome, Kay. Okay. Thank you, Sonia, for your question. I appreciate yes. it. Thank you. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your day to be here. Is there anything we didn't know about where you're appearing? Any classes you're doing with your family or yourself? Well, you, you can find our, our what we're doing on my, on my father's website, miguelruiz.com. Of course, we have social media and things like that. But my dad's website, miguelruiz.com. And I have a website as well, miguelruizjr.com. Yes. But uh, my dad's is the, the home base. Yes. Again, thank you so very much. I'm really grateful and your time has been precious. <laughs>